This morning we looked at the call of Moses, uh, given in Exodus chapter 3, and we looked at his call from God, from the burning bush, to go to Pharaoh in Egypt and to make some uh, rather um, some difficult demands, some things that are going to require a lot of Pharaoh. And Moses had been living his life uh, for the last 40 years as a shepherd, and this really wasn't something on his radar. It's not something he thought he was quite up to the task to, to, to go and do, and so you can see a lot of trepidation. You can see a lot of um, hesitation, and uh, really you see just a lack of desire to go ahead and do it. Uh, he, he objects a number of times to what God has called him to do. But in this, we're reading a story about God calling someone to a major task. And that's something that, that does happen with Moses, but that's also something that happens quite a bit throughout the Bible. You have these stories that you can call them call narratives. And uh, like a lot of different uh, like genres of writing, there are certain, uh, certain like literary structures that you can predict to be a part of certain types of narratives. Um, call narratives are no different. There's a bunch of them in the Bible, and, and the more that you research them, the more you come to find out that there are certain structures and, and tendencies that they tend to follow. Uh, so what we're going to do in our lesson tonight is we're going to look at kind of what the standard biblical structure of a call narrative is, a, a story where God is calling someone to some task. And some of these are monumental, huge uh, calls, like to go to Pharaoh and to demand him let God's people go. Some of these are, are, could be relatively small, uh, you know, simple calls, simple tasks. Some of them might be from, uh, you know, one person to another. We're going to look at, at one of those examples. But one of the things we're going to look at is for this, uh, this structure that is repeated through them. A lot of the research for, uh, like, looking at this structure of call stories, uh, I'm getting from a book called uh, When God Calls by Glenn Pemberton. And... He looks at different call stories in the Bible, and he kind of outlines some of the general um, structure that they follow. Now, this is not a rigid or strict structure, meaning it's not like every single call story has to follow this exact order of events, and you'll see this in every single one of them. But looking at them all together, these are the elements that pop up. These are the things that are pretty consistent among them. And the reason that's helpful to know is because when you see one story that deviates from that, it probably means something significant is happening there. It's like the, when you know what to expect, it becomes more surprising or it becomes more important when you see something that varies from that or deviates from that. You realize, oh, that's happening intentionally and you're supposed to notice that. But it, just kind of keeping the, the Exodus call story that we, we talked about this morning in your mind, this is the structure that generally uh, is going to uh, describe what a call story is about. The first thing you're going to have is a crisis or some sort of uh, problem or some sort of goal that needs to be met. But there, there's a crisis at hand. Uh, in the Exodus, uh, when Moses is called from the burning bush, the crisis is, is pretty clear. You have the children of Israel who have been in bondage and in slavery and whose uh, children have been being killed by Pharaoh and by Egypt. It's like God has heard their cries and God says, I'm going to do something about this. There's a major crisis at hand. And so with a lot of these call stories, there's some sort of crisis or some sort of problem that needs to be satisfied, a goal that needs to be met. Something has to be done. And so that's what God is doing, is calling someone to do it. The second thing you'll see is a summons. And this generally happens when, you know, someone is living their life 
And then all of a sudden, God is interrupting the flow of their life to have them come to him to find out what this is all about. So with the Exodus 3, you have Moses. Moses is out working as he does. And the summons is this burning bush where he goes to investigate it and he's told to take off the sandals because he's on holy ground. It's like you have their life interrupted so that they will come and and, uh, gather around the presence of God or gather around the one calling them so that they can hear what this call is all about. Next, you'll generally see some form of introduction. God will introduce himself or uh, both parties will be introduced to each other. This especially happens on, on a first meeting type of thing. Like the burning bush in Moses. Uh, God and Moses haven't had a lot of communication with each other up to this point uh, that, that we're aware of. Um, God seems to have been involved in what Moses is, is going through and has been preparing Moses for this, but we don't have a lot of lengthy conversations between the two. Um, right here, we're going to get an introduction to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. And so God will say from the burning bush, I am the God of your father, uh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. It's like you have an introduction where the parties are meeting each other. Um, Next is generally you'll have the commission. Um, This is when you're told what the call is going to be. So you've had the crisis, you have the summons to come gather, uh, you have the introduction of the parties, and then you have what the commission is. And Moses is told his commission is to go to Pharaoh and to tell him to bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. So that's his commission. Uh, and that's, that's the tough one. Uh, but again, this is something, I mean, that's going to be in like every call story, because every call story has some sort of commission to go out and do this. And then you have, and this is something that pops up in almost every call story, What we talked about quite a bit this morning is the objection. Almost every call story has this. Not every single one, and that's that's noteworthy, but almost every call story has some sort of objection to what God has just called them to do. Moses gives about five. Uh, Moses, you know, is like, who am I to do this? And then, well, what if they ask who who sent me? Who are you? And then he asks, but what if they don't believe me? And then then he says, uh, but I'm not very good at speaking. I'm slow of tongue and slow of mouth. And and then he says, just send someone else that you want to. You know, let's, let's, and uh, with each of those, you have the sixth part of a call story, which is the reassurance which often takes place, especially in a divine call story that's coming from God, um, as a demonstration of God's favor and perhaps a sign to show that God is with this person. And so with each of Moses' objections, um, but who am I? God says, that doesn't really matter. (laughs) I'll be with you. So that's the important thing. Uh, When Moses says, who are you? God answers his question. Tell him the I am has sent you. Tell him Yahweh has sent you, is what he goes on to say. Like, you, you tell them my name, and I'm revealing that now to you. Um, when Moses says, what if they don't believe me? Well, he's given clear signs. He, he's told that uh, uh, to uh, throw the staff down and it turns into a serpent. He's told he, his hand turns into leprosy and then it's cured. And then he's told about uh, turning the water into blood. Now, something that's actually really interesting, and I want to dive into this further because uh, it's something I hadn't really thought about much before, but just came across recently. Um, those are called signs what God is showing Moses there. Um, Moses goes to Egypt, and he performs all of these signs, or God does these signs through him. And we always call them the 10 plagues. 
Like that's, that's, very, that's very foundational to what we think Moses did in, in Egypt. One thing that's interesting is unlike, say, the Ten Commandments, where we're told there's Ten Commandments, we're not actually given a passage that calls these the Ten Plagues. Um, we just count them and we say there are Ten Plagues. But what's really interesting about that is the Bible doesn't usually call them plagues. Like some of the individual ones, they are called a plague. That word pops up. But more than anything else, what the Bible calls them are signs or signs and wonders. And if you look at all of the things that Moses does in Egypt that are called signs or signs and wonders, there's not 10. You could probably count 12. If you include the first one, which is throwing the staff down and it turning into a serpent, and the last one, the big finale one, which is crossing of the Red Sea and the Egyptian army being taken out. Um, so it's, it's at least conceivable. And like I said, I want to study this a little further before I make any, uh, you know, strong statements. But it's conceivable that it's more accurate to call them the 12 signs rather than the 10 plagues. But uh, anyway, what God does do for him is he shows him signs. And signs are going to demonstrate or illustrate that God is going to be with him. So he not only says he's going to be with him, he confirms it with signs. And then the, his whole experience in Egypt is a demonstration of these powerful signs that God is doing among the Egyptians. But though that's a helpful way of reassuring someone whose life has just been turned upside down by this call, and they have their objections, and they have their reasons why it would be a better idea for you to choose someone else. But instead of God uh, granting Moses his wish, God shows him through signs that I will be with you through this all. And then when Moses, uh, you know, when he says, well, I'm not a good speaker, God reassures him of that by saying, I'll, I'll be in your mouth. I, I'm the one who created your mouth. I will be able to do this. And then when Moses still wants someone else sent, he says, I will send someone else. I'll send Aaron, but you're going with him. Uh, you guys are going to work together in this thing. And so God reassures him through each of these in order to give him the confidence that he needs. And so we talked about some of those things this morning, but each of those elements uh, of a call story, you can see them in other call stories as well. And so when you start seeing those things pop up, as you're reading through the Bible, you can start to realize, hey, I think I'm entering into a type of literature right here. I think I'm entering into a unique wave of storytelling. This is, this is your traditional call story. Um, let's give an example of one of these that, um, that we might not think about too much. It's not actually from God. It's from a master to a servant. And you can see it in Genesis chapter 24. <coughs> this is, um, I, I guess you would call this a smaller call story in the grand scheme of things. But this is Moses calling his servant to go find a wife for uh, his son Isaac. And what you'll see as you read through this is that same structure that we just talked about. It's going to present itself, uh, or at least very similar to that structure is going to present itself. So you get to Genesis chapter 24, and we find ourselves in a time of crisis. Now what's the crisis in Genesis 24? Well, if you read the chapter right before it, Sarah has died. Uh, that's Abraham's wife. She's died and she's been buried. And Abraham is getting older and older and older. And he's, I think, perhaps thinking about his own mortality. And he's looking at his son, Isaac. Now, what was Abraham promised? Way back in like Genesis 12 and then a couple of times thereafter, Genesis 15 and 18. And like he was promised that through him, there would be this great nation. 
and they would have as many as the sand of the seashore, as many as the stars of the heavens. And, you know, it's like you're going to have kids, and they're going to have kids, and they're going to have kids. There's going to be all of these kids, and you're going to have this great nation that comes from you. And Abraham had a really tough time getting to Isaac. It's like every step of the way, he, he struggled with how that promise was going to come about. But eventually Isaac came, and then he sees Isaac grow, and Isaac has become a man. Now Sarah's died. And now look at chapter 24 and verse 1. Now Abraham was old and advanced in age. So like Abraham's getting older and he's looking at Isaac and Isaac is about 40 right now. You, you'll see that in, in uh, Genesis 25. It, it mentions how old he is. But Isaac's about 40 and guess what? He still doesn't have a wife. And that's kind of important for this promise to go on to the next stage. Uh, and so Abraham is starting to be concerned that, hey, uh, we're dying, and he's getting older, and he's living among a, a bunch of women that he shouldn't marry here in, in, in this land. Uh, we had to do something to get him a wife. And so then he calls his servants to him, and uh, then we have a next call story. So let's look at Genesis chapter 24. So the crisis would be getting a wife for Isaac before, uh, before Abraham dies and before uh, it's too late for, uh, for Isaac to do so. And then uh, you have the summons. In chapter 24, in verse 2, says, Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he owned, please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take, and then he starts to tell him what to do. But notice, there's the summons and some sort of demonstration of it. He has him come and place his hand under uh, Abraham's thigh, which is, like, I've never, <laughs> I've never had someone come and do that. So that's some sort of cultural thing that, uh, that we're not certain, you know, that happens all the time in the Bible, where you read something, and I'm betting, you know, 3,000 years ago, when someone was reading this, they're like, oh yeah, obviously, this is important, because he, that, that's a real sign of, of showing how uh, solemn this charge is going to be, and we read it, and we think, well, that's strange. Uh, like, culture does that. Um, you don't even have to travel in time to have culture do that type of thing. You can just go to other parts of the world, and you'll realize something that we might take for granted as very normal other people will think is bizarre. And something that another culture might take for granted is very normal, you would go there and experience is very bizarre. And I, I bet something like that is happening right here as we read this. But notice this is a summons. This is him calling him. And there's some, like, the, he's, he's the servant who's taking care of the house. And he has all these responsibilities, but Moses, or uh, Abraham calls him from that and has him come uh, and spend some time with him. And, uh, and he's going to call him to go do this uh, charge. What you don't really have in this one very much is the idea of an introduction, because they do know each other already. So you don't have Abraham introducing himself or the servant really introducing himself, although he is introduced to the reader. Like, it's not spoken, but the, it, to us, the reader, in verse 2, the servant is introduced as the, the oldest in the household who had charge of all that he owned, and God is introduced in uh, verse 3 as swearing by the Lord, the God of the heaven and the God of the earth. Uh, so you at least have an introduction to who this call is ultimately going to be, uh, who's going to be the witness of this call. It's going to be in the presence of God, the one who is the God of heaven and the one who's the God of earth. Then you get the actual commission. The commission is in verse 3, the second part of it, that you not take a wife 
for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, like any of the women around here, don't marry them off to Isaac. But, verse 4, you will go to my country and to my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. So he's sending them on a journey back to where Abraham came from to go there and to go find a, a wife for Isaac uh, from among his own relatives. So that's the call. That's the, the crisis, the summons, the, uh, the introduction, the commission. And then what comes next is the objection. And sure enough, it fits right in verse 5. The servant said to him, But suppose the woman is not willing to follow me back to this land. Should I take your son back to the land where you came? It's like, well, what if I go there and I find this woman and I say, hey, leave your family and leave everything and come follow me to the land of Canaan where you've never been before because I have a husband you've never met before. Go marry him. Uh, She might not want to do that and her father might not want her to do that. So what if they're unwilling for her to go do this? Uh, Do I get Isaac and bring him over there? And Abraham says, no, absolutely not. Do not bring Isaac uh, there. You bring her here. That's what you're supposed to do. But you get to verse uh, 7. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, this is Abraham's part of his response, and from the land of my birth, and who has spoke to me and swore to me, saying, to your descendants I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you will take a wife from my son there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from my oath. Only do not take my son back there. So he says, look, God's presence will be with you through an angel as you do this. But if the woman absolutely refuses, then you're free of this charge. You don't have to follow this calling anymore. You did your job. Uh, Do not bring Isaac there. Try to have her come here. If she refuses, uh, if God doesn't make her come, then you're free of this. But notice how in this call story, it's a smaller call story. It's from a, a master to a servant. But it follows, in essence, the same structure as God's call to, to Moses. Uh, you'll see this same structure pop up in a lot of them. Let's look at another one in, uh, in uh, Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. This is the call of Gideon. Uh, Gideon is being called to uh, free Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Um, I remember uh, I remember one of my first devotionals uh, that I gave, I think I was, I, no, I wasn't still in high school. It was the summer after I graduated high school. I was giving it to the high school youth group, uh, and I was talking about uh, the book of Joshua, where uh, the Gibeonites had deceived Joshua and uh, ended up making a covenant with him that Joshua wasn't supposed to make, and, uh, and they ended up being able to remain in the, the promised land, uh, even though they were supposed to be driven out from the promised land. And I, that's the passage I was talking about. And I realized over halfway through the lesson that I was not calling them the Gibeonites, but the Gideonites. Uh, I was calling the, the judge. And then, uh, you know, it's probably the type of thing where maybe some people, I imagine some people noticed, but maybe a lot of the, the youth group didn't notice. But as soon as I did it, I thought, oh no, I've been calling them the, uh, the, the, Gib- the Gideonites, not Gideonites. And then I went blank. And I thought, Midianites. And then I gave the rest of the lesson as the Midianites. And then I got to the end and I realized, wait, I've been saying Midianites. It's the Gibeonites. Anyway, 
That's the only thing I remember about that lesson was getting Gibeonites mixed up with Gideonites and then Midianites before trying to correct it to Gibeonites. And by the time I got to the end of it, I don't think anyone had a clue what the lesson was about. But uh, I'm going to try to not do that type of thing right now. but um, I, well, I don't know why I'm telling this story, but also this one happened just like two years ago. Uh, this was in Monroe before moving up here. I gave a lesson and I was talking about Barabbas and Jesus, who, you know, before the crucifixion of Jesus, Barabbas was brought up there. And at one point in the lesson, I made a, a little explanatory comment about uh, the bar. Uh, at the beginning of his name, Barabbas meaning son of. And I said, kind of like uh, Barnabas, son of encouragement. And as soon as I said the word Barnabas, I never went back to Barabbas. And I talked about Barnabas and Jesus the whole time. And then right at the end of the lesson, I realized, I was like, wait a minute, was I saying Barnabas the whole time? And I got a bunch of nodding heads. So anyway, I make mistakes. That's it's, it's why I, I shouldn't be doing this, but whatever. Uh, that's, that's my objection to, to uh, preaching. I was like, I, I'm not smart enough. No, um, but okay. So Judges 6, this is Gideon. And uh, in Judges chapter 6, he is going to be called. There's a crisis that starts uh, the whole thing. The first six verses or so of chapter 6 is describing that crisis. And the crisis comes from the Midianites. And the Midianites have made life miserable. Uh, They prevailed over Israel. They have uh, made Israel impoverished and destitute. Uh, When you get to verse uh, 4, you learn some of the things that they're doing. They would camp against Israel and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance for Israel, as well as no sheep, ox or donkeys. So it's like they're destroying Israel. They're destroying the land that Israel has. Like Israel, like they're starving and they're miserable. And so you get to verse uh, six. And so, so Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. And so here we're going to have God answer their call by sending an angel and calling a man to lead in this, uh, in this uh, rebellion against the Midianites. And that's going to be Gideon. And so the crisis is how miserable life is because of the Midianites. Uh, and you get to verse 11, we're going to get uh, the, uh, the summons. It says, And the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was at Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, the son of Gideon was, uh, and his son Gideon was beating out the wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. So he's trying to like make some wheat in before the Midianites can destroy it. And uh, so he's doing it in the wine press and he's trying to save it and kind of hide it because that's what you have to do. And so he's, you know, notice there, he's just living his life. You know, he's just doing his daily responsibilities. He's trying to uh, survive in this terrible time. And his daily life is going to be interrupted by this summons. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said, oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, he, he hears that the Lord is with you. And he takes immediate exception to it because looking around at the miserable life that he is now enduring, it sure does not seem like the Lord is with him. Uh, so he's being summoned to have this conversation and he's ready for it. Um, rather than waiting, however, for the angel to do the introduction, Gideon's going to do the introduction uh, on his own. Um, he's going to say in verse 13, oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, 
Why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. So when he introduces God, he introduces him as the one that like, yeah, I've heard all the great stories about him. I heard about his great miracles back there in Egypt, but where are they now? Why, why is Egypt so important to overthrow? But look at us now. Why isn't Midian important to overthrow? And so he hears that God is with you, and it sure does not seem like it to him. By the way, I imagine there have been times in each of our lives where we could perhaps relate to what Gideon is, is feeling right here, uh, where, yes, I know in my head that God is supposed to have done a lot of great things in the past, and I know that God's supposed to love me now, but sometimes it just doesn't quite seem like it. Sometimes it certainly doesn't feel like it. So where is he now? Uh, so God is introduced as the God who used to do great stuff for Israel, but is no longer doing it. Um, that's how Gideon is seeing God at this point. Well, the commission is about to come. Um, when you look at verse 14, it says, the Lord looked at him. And that's interesting, by the way, and we can talk about this more maybe with, for another lesson, but how often there is, uh, like it happens at the burning bush. It happens right here. The angel of the Lord shows up and we're introduced to this character as the angel of the Lord, but almost immediately in the conversation, it's no longer the angel of the Lord who's being referred to, but the Lord himself. It's like the angel of the Lord is able to speak as though uh, representing, and perhaps even more than that, perhaps uh, himself embodying or, or being the very presence of the Lord God himself. And uh, that's an interesting idea that might uh, play a role into understanding uh, what the incarnation is a little about when, a bit about when it comes to Jesus himself. Uh, Jesus, who prays to God, uh, who is a person, but also is very much carrying the authority and the presence and, and uh, the very identity of God within himself. But uh, as you read, verse 14 says, the Lord looked at him and said, go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Well, that's the commission. It's like, well, go in your strength. He doesn't, he doesn't actually answer the questions that, Midi, that Gideon asks. Gideon's like, well, God's with me. Why isn't he doing anything? Why, where are his great miracles that we heard about in Egypt? What, what's happening now? And instead of answering those, he's just given the commission to go and to free uh, Israel. He's told to go free them from the oppression, deliver them from the hand of Midian. And so, verse 15 what should you uh, expect at this point in the story? We've had the crisis. We've had the summons. We've had the introduction to who uh, the, the parties are. Uh, we've had the commission of what he's supposed to do. Now is when you get the objection. And sure enough, uh, you read verse 15. And he said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's household. It's like you're asking the wrong guy. I'm just sitting here trying to get some wheat. I'm, this isn't, I didn't come here today for this. Uh, I, I'm not important. I'm, I'm like, my family's not important. Our tribe isn't very important. Of all the people to ask, won't you go ask Samson or something? Uh, you know, why would you ask me? Uh, this, this doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and so there you have the objection. And again, it's, it's going to be a similar type of objection to what you see with, with Moses. Uh, Moses, who thinks, well, who am I that you would send me? I'd send somebody else. Um, Gideon's going to have that same type of idea here. And, you know, we can talk about, uh, about 
that objection, but as I mentioned this morning, it, it's something that you see regularly in these stories. That's one of the most common staples that pops up, is uh, when someone's called by God to go do something, they object to it. And what's also interesting about that is that God lets them, and God usually answers them. You know, Moses, when he did it five times, after the fifth one, uh, it says, then the Lord became angry. Uh, but after the first four, you don't have that. And what's interesting also is his fifth one wasn't so much an objection as much as it was kind of like a no. It was like, send somebody else. Uh, it wasn't a, I'm not a good speaker, or it wasn't so much an admission of humility. It was more of a, of a request to, let's just end this conversation and you go find somebody else. Uh, and the Lord does respond with anger there. But what tends to happen is God is understanding of human fear and, and I think probably appreciative to an extent of the recognition of our own human frailty. Like, like we talked about, if God calls you into something like this and, and you say, yeah, you probably do need me, uh, that's not a good sign. That probably is a sign that you are going to miss the boat here. I mean, I, I know, I, I think... I think I know of two different kinds of people. Uh, it's probably more than that. But I know I've had conversations with people who have considered ministry before and didn't want to do it because they didn't think they were good enough. And by good enough, I'm talking about like good enough as humans. Like I'm, I'm, too, much, I'm too immoral or I'm too much of a sinner. And there, you know, there might be some, some, if you have some real stuff going on, you know, be aware of that. But I, I do think sometimes there are people who like, they will refuse and it's out of a recognition of their own human frailty. And sometimes those kind of people can actually do a really, really good job because they're approaching it as though this matters. This isn't something to take lightly. This is something that, uh, that like, it would change my whole life if I were to do it. I know other people who tend to have the mindset that if they weren't there doing what they are doing, then the church would fall apart. It's like they're the most important person in the world and the show is all about them. And that is a much more dangerous type of person than this one. This one, you want them to be more active. But this one right here, once you start to think that you're worthy of the ministry that God is calling you to do, once you think that you deserve it or that it couldn't go on without you, that's when the wheels fall off. You can... You can Google pastors who've, uh, you know, had uh, things blow up in their face. And, and you can see there's like an infinite number of searches there. And it usually happens once they get to this point where they think that they're too important not to have this job. Um, I think there's actually some value to the objection and letting God work with you through it to understand that he'll be with you even in spite of your weaknesses. So you have Gideon here who recognizes his weaknesses and God's response, the reassurance, which is the final part, the reassurance and the sign that God will be with him follows thereafter. Verse 16 says, but the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Now, one of the things that's really fascinating about this is that's the same thing that God says to Moses. And if you remember what Gideon's, uh, like his first statement was recalling the time period of Moses in Egypt. He brings up Egypt and he brings up the fact that didn't you do these great miracles back then? Where are those things now? And God is going to treat him in essence in the same way he treated Moses. He's going to say, 
but I will be with you. Uh, he's going to tell, he's going to give him the same reassurance that he gives Moses after Moses' first objection. And so he gives that to Gideon now. And then, just like he gave Moses those signs about, you know, throwing the, spear, the staff down and it turning into a serpent or the water into blood or the hand into leprosy, he's going to do some signs here for Gideon. When you look at verse uh, 20, <coughs> Gideon goes and prepares a meal. Then you get to verse 20. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And so he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of his staff that was on his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. And when Gideon saw that it was the angel of the Lord, he said, alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. That's kind of the same fear people have when they see God, by the way. But notice he does a sign right there. And it doesn't actually end there. The story goes on after um, Gideon goes and destroys an altar of, of Baal. He's called again, and he wants another sign then. And so he ends up getting like a fleece, and he, uh, he lays it down, and the, the fleece has to have dew on it, but the ground be dry the next morning. And then he's like, one more thing. Uh, the next morning, can we reverse that? And, and so he, he really wants assurances, and God gives them to him because God is going to be with him through this. So you can look at these examples, and these are just, those are three of them. Uh, there's a ton more that you can look at, but what you'll often see is the same pattern uh, over and over and over again, where these same things happen. But then there are times where there's a deviation. There are times when Moses, he gives his objection, and you say, okay, good. He got his objection out of the way. Let's move on with the story. But then he gives another one. You're like, hmm, okay. And then you try to move on. He gives another one. And then he gives another one. And then he gives, and you're like, oh, this guy really doesn't want to do this. <laughs> but like, there's things like that that they deviate from the norm, and so they, they stand out, and you notice them. But then who is it who follows after Moses? It's Joshua. And you know what's interesting about Joshua? He's one of the rare cases where you don't see an objection. Uh, Moses gives five, Joshua doesn't give any. Uh, and that might be something to, to pay attention to when you're reading through and you're trying to see kind of the, some of the similarities and differences. When it comes to prophets, you have uh, Isaiah, has a, has, in Isaiah 6, he has his call story, and he actually reverses some of the order of the things. For example, uh, his objection and his acceptance seem to come before he even notices, before he's even told what the commission is. Like, he says, woe is me, I'm undone, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then uh, a coal is brought by a seraphim to his mouth, and it touches his mouth, and it purifies him, and, and his sin is cleansed. And, and like, you have this act of God's grace given to him uh, to demonstrate that God is with him before God ever gives him the call. And then he, God says, who will I send? And he doesn't say, send where? Uh, instead, what he says is, here I am, send me. And then God does, and then God tells him what it's going to be. And it's a miserable ministry. When you read through like the job description that he's going to have, it's really, really rough. But in that one, because of God's grandeur and God's act of grace towards him, he accepts the mission prior to the call. And so you get some of them out of order there, which is interesting. Jonah, on the other hand, uh, he receives the call, 
and he never really makes much of an objection to it. He just gets out of there, and he runs away from the call. And, and you can compare and contrast, you know, some of these different call stories, but uh, I, was, I was talking to, to Bill Walt just a few minutes before uh, services started, and he brought up Ananias, you know, going to, to Paul. And sure enough, he was given a call to go talk to Paul, and uh, he brings up the fact that I've heard about this guy. Uh, he's not a good friend to Christians right now, or to Saul. Uh, he says, uh, you know, he has letters from the high priest to bring them bound and to put into prison. Like, you know, over and over again, you have people, when they're given this call, they have some sort of objection to it, whether it's uh, Jeremiah saying that he's too young, or whether it's Ananias who's worried about what Saul's going to do if he goes over there, or whether it's Gideon, or whether it's uh, uh, the servant of Abraham, or whether it's Moses himself. These call stories have this in common, and I think that they're, with each one of these elements of the structure of it, there's a lesson that we could learn from it. So just kind of to recap and to bring the lesson to a close. Um, God calls people when there's a need that needs to be met. So I think one thing you could do, if, you're, if you hear all of this vague talk about calls, and you think, well, is God calling me? Well, one thing you should look for is, is there a need that needs to be met? Uh, are there things that your, that your church family are looking for help with? Uh, those can be calls. Those very well may be the call that you're having right now. Having a need that should be met might be an opportunity for you to take up the mantle of being one who's called by God. Uh, I don't know that you're going to have a great throne room scene like Isaiah or see a burning bush, but I bet you can be called, and I bet God can use you to meet certain needs. Um, secondly, uh, the summons. Um, a lot of times our call will disrupt our ordinary schedule. Uh, the way that we perhaps want our life to go. We're out doing our own thing, whether we're threshing out the wheat or we're out shepherding or we're out taking care of the household duties with each of the examples that we've seen. We were called away from that to do something else. And I think sometimes that's the hardest part of the call. It's like we fill our lives with so much stuff and so our schedules are so busy that we don't have a time to notice the needs and we don't hear the call because of that. Um, perhaps one thing we should do is loosen up our schedule a little bit so that we can devote more time to what we say matters to us more than anything else. Um, when it comes to the introduction, where God says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'll say it is much easier to say yes to a call when you know the one that you're obeying, when you know the one that you're following. Um, the closer you come to know God, the more you'll want to do in service to him and out of love for him. Um, if it's just a call with no origin, uh, or if it's a call with no source, or if it's a call with no personality behind it, or if it's a call from someone you don't love and care about, it's a much easier call to say no to. But the more that you know God, the more you'll want to answer the call. Uh, and I think that's one of the reasons the introduction becomes a really important part of it. So, I mean, even like the Ten Commandments. You know, we talk about the, the Ten Commandments. They don't start with the list of rules. They start with God telling you who he is and what he has done for you. I'm the God who has freed you out of Egypt. I'm the God who has freed you out of the house of slavery. It's like, in order to do what God has requested, he wants you to know that he's the one who loves you so much that he sent his son to die for you. That changes the nature of the call a little bit. The introduction's an important part. Um, 
when it comes to the commission, keeping your eyes and ears open and recognizing that there's plenty of opportunity. In fact, your church family is often looking for people to fill certain opportunities. Uh, you can go to the elders and ask, you know, what, what is it that I could do? And I bet uh, it's kind of like a kid who uh, is complaining to his parents about being bored, and your parents are like, I, I can find something for you. Uh, if you're looking for something to do, I guarantee you there's something that you can do. Uh, and so uh, being able to, uh, to find your commission becomes an important part of it. The objection. The objection is a normal part. The objection that says, that's not my skill, that's not my talent, I don't have time for that, that's going to be too hard, someone else could do it better. Uh, all of those things, they might be reasonable, but at the same time, Moses gave five and God didn't let him walk away. Um, God understands, I think, that there are objections. God understands and, and, and I think perhaps wants us to take it so seriously that there's hesitation on our part. But each of the objections is met with a reassurance that you're not doing this alone, that God loves you, that God will be with you, that you have a church family who loves you and will support you through this, and that uh, God will see through what he has started in you until the end. And that's an important and powerful reassurance and one that hopefully gets us through the difficulty of saying yes. Uh, so you can look through these call stories and there's a lot that you can learn from them, but those are some of the things that I try to take from them uh, as I consider uh, how I want to live in service to God, and hopefully uh, we all can as well. If there's anyone here who wants to answer the call tonight to give your life to Christ, to become a Christian, to become a follower of Jesus for the rest of your life, we pray that you would let that be known. We will pray for you, support you. We can talk further with you about that if you have that need. But if you would, please let us know. Come sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.